April Dunford likes to say that positioning has a positioning problem. It's not messaging, it's not a tagline, it's not personas or mission statements, it's not even strategy. Instead, as April puts it, positioning are the clues that allow people to make sense of your product and how they should think of it. Positioning isn't new, it's not trendy. This is why when April published her book, Obviously Awesome, she figured only her clients would be excited to read it. When the book blew up in the marketing and tech circles, she was surprised. It got to the point where she was receiving angry messages that there was no audiobook. Her response? Sorry, I didn't think anyone was going to read it. The response only validates one of the central themes of the book. Most of us don't understand positioning and how to leverage it as a superpower. A superpower to be unique, to be different than competitors, even much bigger ones, to own a market. Luckily, April's here to show us the way. And while she's surprised that so many of you cared about the subject matter, she's really glad that you do. This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers, the ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. You know, when I started talking about positioning, I quickly came to the realization that that word means a lot of different things. And, you know, (laughs) I believe that if you had a room full of marketing people, like if I had a dozen vice presidents of marketing sitting in a room right now and I were to ask them like, hey, define positioning, I would get a dozen different definitions. And a lot of the times what I get is a confusion between positioning and things that I would call outputs of positioning or things that happen after positioning. Sure. So the most common one is people think positioning and messaging are the same and they're not like positioning is an input to messaging. Um, other people will say positioning is a tagline, but a lot of people like, like taglines. Oh, they love the headlines. <laughs> yeah, they love it. People watch too much Mad Men. That's what it is. They do. They do. (laughs) So they just want to have a tagline. But positioning is not a tagline. You can't write a tagline until you have positioning. And my personal pet peeve is brand positioning, which that drives me crazy. There is positioning and there is branding. And those two things are very separate. And in again, in, in my opinion, I don't know how you figure out branding without figuring out positioning first. So in my definition, positioning describes how your offering is uniquely qualified to be a leader at something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now that encompasses a lot of stuff, right? It encompasses your competitors, what you do that's different than your competitors, the value you can deliver, who exactly your product is aimed at or your segmentation as well as market category. So that's kind of a lot of stuff to squeeze into a definition. So I guess it makes sense being such a big concept that maybe we don't really understand what it is. Right, right. And yeah, mission, vision statements, um, personas, target audience, just things that I've experienced people confuse that stuff with. Niching down gets closer, right? But not but but again, it is is, is really just an output of it. Um, And uh, you've You've helped bring many products right to market over. I mean, you've been a marketing executive for a long time. Do, yeah. you, do you have 
like a favorite lesson or story. I know I have one just from the stuff I've watched of you, which was the the story you told about Jana, which was the CRM software, uh, yeah. which was early in your career, right? That you you That's worked on. That's a good one. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was pretty early. That was pretty early. That was maybe the second repositioning I was involved with. No, maybe the third, actually the third. So yeah, early-ish. But, That's early yeah. CRM too, right? I mean... Oh, really? Well, you know, it, it, CRM's been around a lot longer than people think. Like, people have short memories in tech, <laughs> let me tell you. Like, you know, yeah. like... like I've had people tell me that they think Salesforce invented CRM, and right. I was like, "Oh, children, let me tell you, back in the day, <laughs> it maybe maybe wasn't as slick, right? In the olden days, like, and and it's not even like we didn't have a big CRM company in the market at the time. We had Siebel, and they were publicly traded, two billion right. revenue. Like, people, this has been around for a long time, right? But um, yeah, the Jana story, I could tell it if you want. You want me? Yeah, to tell sure, it? yeah. Of course. So the so that one's an interesting one because I, and I like to tell that story because I I feel like um, in niche marketing strategy or you know figuring out how to be a big fish in a small pond is often sort of looked down on as kind of a not very cool way to position yourself, uh, particularly in the venture community or people that are trying to raise venture money. Like they like this idea. They think this, you know, well, that would just be too small. And how could you position yourself like that? And Everyone's a customer, money? right? Yeah. And, yeah. And so I, I like to tell this story because I think it not only is a good story to illustrate how you would make money doing that, but it's also, it's also really typical of how successful startups start. So we, um, the company when I joined was positioning itself as enterprise CRM. So Salesforce was around that time, but they, um, they were really focused on the low end of the market. Like they were really selling CRM for SMBs and they were like a brand new company at that time. And mm. so the gorilla in the market was this Siebel, Siebel Systems who, like I said before, it was this great big company. Um, and so we positioned ourselves as enterprise CRM and they were enterprise CRM. So unsurprisingly, every time we got a meeting with a customer, the first question we get is, so how are you different than Siebel? And the answer to that question was, we kind of, you know, we're not very good compared to them. We're <laughs> <laughs> like, a worse like, version of Siebel? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they had 8,000 employees. We had like 20 at the time. They had... 2 billion revenue. We did one and a half million revenue. Like they had all kinds of features that we didn't have. And so, you know, we just, we just weren't better than them in any way, really, except for two things. So we had two things going for us. The first one was, um, we weren't selling a lot. So, you know, if you, if you, wanted an enterprise CRM super, super cheap. <laughs> we were willing to drop the price to pretty much anything you would pay us <laughs> in order to get a deal because we were desperate. And then we had this feature that they didn't have. And um, what it allowed you to do was it allowed you to model a many-to-many -many relationship between people instead of companies, which, you know, even today, no CRM really does that. And th the problem was, we knew we had that feature that was different and distinct from Siebel. The problem was that we didn't really understand the value of it. So we always pitched it and showed it in demos, 
and and customers would look at it and say, oh, that looks kind of interesting. Like, what do you, and then they'd say, well, what do you use that for? And we'd say, anything you want. <laughs> because <laughs> we didn't know. And so, um, so we were having a hard time selling. And how we got out of it was kind of by accident where we um, – we, what actually happened is we hired a sales rep that um, got us into Goldman Sachs. And we got a meeting with Goldman Sachs. And what happened in that meeting was we showed that feature and the head of investment banking got super, super excited about it. And we ended up closing a deal. And it turned out that for that department inside the bank, being able to model that many-to-many relationship across people allowed them to sell really effectively. So in their sales model, it made a huge, huge difference. So we started selling to investment banks and, you know, eventually we decided like maybe we should reposition ourselves instead of being just general purpose enterprise CRM. Maybe what we want to be is CRM for investment banks. And that, you know, that might not even sound like a very big decision, but it was like, it took us a long time to get our own heads around it. And I'm telling you, the investors didn't like it. The board didn't like it. For the, for the, for the typical reasons. Typical reasons. So they were like, look, we didn't invest in you to be some little nichey thing. Right. We invested in you to be a billion dollar business. And how are you going to make any money? Just selling in that tiny little niche. And, and so how we convinced them is we said, look, we're not going to be here forever, right? We're going to go sell to investment banking. And then, you know, once we dominate that, then we're going to go sell to all the other departments inside the investment bank. And then once we dominate that, we're going to go sell retail banks. And then once we totally dominate retail banking, then we're going to go sell insurance. And if we manage to dominate insurance, then we're going to be a great big company. And when we're a great big company, then we're going to go challenge Seabull. And, you know, hopefully they're old and tired by then. And we're, <laughs> we're, going, to, we're going to get them. And so we got approval to go do it. And that change in positioning was really, really transformational for the business. Um, So it allowed us to get really, really focused on our marketing and sales efforts. And we could be very targeted in everything, like the way we talk to customers, the way we did demos, our demo data, the language that we used, like everything was very investment banking specific. And so it helped us really, really stand out from Siebel. Like we would go in, like, whereas before we'd say, oh, we're enterprise CRM. And they would say, well, how are you better than Siebel? Instead, we'd go in and we'd say, we're CRM for investment banks. And the bankers would be like, hmm, like, don't you guys compete with Siebel? And we'd say, oh, Siebel, we love those guys. (laughs) We love them. They're amazing. What a fantastic company. So many customers, so many employees, so successful. They're like the world's most amazing general purpose CRM (laughs) for like call centers in India and manufacturing plants and stuff, but not you, Wolf of Wall Street. You need something special. You don't need general. And then I show them this feature, everybody get all excited. And so it, it really helped us again to find this this market where we could win. 
And once we had that, things just took off. So we grew super, super fast. Um, we went from, like I said, about a million and a half revenue to a little bit under 80 million revenue in about uh, just a little over a year and a half. Wow. Which was really fast. Um, and then the end of that story is um, we started getting serious traction and and Siebel ended up acquiring us for uh, $1.3 billion. I mean, the the ultimate validation, it's, right? That what Yeah, right. And <laughs> so, you know, I like to tell that one again, because everybody's like, oh, how are you going to make any money? Right. And thing, right? Right. Based, we were based in Toronto, and at the time, it was the, right. it was the largest acquisition of a software company in Canada ever. Wow. And that's kind of proof, too, in validation that positioning, you can position, positioning can be used as sort of like a superpower when you're in a market with bigger fish like Jana was with Siebel and like so many other, so many other companies find themselves in now, right? When you have a big player in the market, positioning can sort of be a superpower in that way. Exactly. Exactly. Like, so, you know, I had, and so I had a series of these early in my career where, you know, we had a product that looked like a bit of a dog, but, you know, we figured out who really loved it and what they were doing with it and why they loved it. And then we managed to double down and position around that and then just run at it really hard. And it was the difference between failure and success. So how can how can positioning the approach there change depending on say the stage of the company right like Janet was really early at that time but say yeah. like a you know a pre seed startup versus a Series A or a Series B does the <clears throat> approach or the reliance on positioning change just because like things might still be fluid you're kind yeah. of still figuring out who your what, what product market fit looks like does the approach change depending just on the stage of the company. Yeah, it totally does. Like in in my opinion, um, in the early stages of the company, when you're either pre-launch or you've just launched, but you don't have a lot of real traction yet, mm. I actually think people shouldn't get too hung up on positioning. And my my advice to them is to keep the positioning kind of loose because you don't really know how to do positioning yet because you don't really know yet the patterns around who loves your stuff and why what you've got is a positioning thesis and so um, you need to validate that your assumptions around that thesis are correct first before you can really get tight on the positioning so the the analogy I use all the time is like you know you built a fishing net and you have a theory that the fishing net is good for tuna. So you could position the thing as like the world's greatest tuna net and then go to the part of the ocean where there's only tuna and maybe you catch some tuna, maybe you don't. <laughs> or maybe a better way to do it is to say, I got a fishing net. I think it's good for big fish. And you position it like that, a little bit looser. You go out to the part of the ocean where there's all kinds of different fish, throw the sucker out there and see what you pull up. And then, you know, once you start seeing some patterns, you're like, you know what? I actually catch grouper all day with this thing. Then you say, okay, fine. Now, now I know what it is. It's a grouper net. I'm going to position it as a grouper net and then go to the grouper part of town and catch grouper all day. It's it's Jana saying that they're enterprise CRM, right? That's right. That's um, right. That's I love that analogy, by the way. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. And uh, and and so if you're a if you're a new leader or, or a new executive, uh, which you've been, you know, many times in your career, where does positioning fall 
on the priority list? Like when you say you're coming into a new company, yeah. uh, obviously the stage matters, but mm-hmm. where, where, where should positioning fall on just a priority list of a new executive or a new leader in a company? Well, so here's the thing. If you're the head of marketing, which, you know, that's my background, right? So I would come into the new company as a VP marketing and, you know, and you're expected to, to, to deliver marketing magic, right? So, so you show up and everyone's like, great, we got a new VP marketing and she's going to like sprinkle that marketing magic around and, and you know, the growth <laughs> is going to start happening. It's going to be amazing. But I'm the VP marketing and I'm like, okay, in order to run campaigns, I need to understand the inputs to a campaign and the inputs to every campaign is positioning, right? So I need to understand exactly who's the campaign targeted at and what is the value proposition I'm going to communicate in that campaign and um, what are the real differentiators that I have versus my competition. I need to know all these things before I can go build a marketing plan. Right. And so I would basically come in and try to figure out, do we have real specificity in all those things enough for me to go and build really good campaigns around? If we don't, then I got to do that first. Like I, I'm just going to be basically pouring water into a leaky bucket otherwise. Right. So for me, um, I would generally try to go in and assess the positioning right away and if it was good or it seemed okay, then I would run some test campaigns just to test it and see, like, does it work the way I think it should work? Um, if I got the idea that the positioning was bad, then we had to fix that first before we could do anything else because otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> well, what signals are you looking for to say that it, it works or it's effective? Well, so the big thing, the, the, the worst part about weak positioning is weak positioning gets you all across the funnel. Like, it's not like it shows up in one particular metric. It's like nobody can figure out who you are. So you have a hard time getting people into the funnel in the first place. And then nobody can really figure out your value and stuff. So you get this sluggishness in the middle of the funnel. And then your sales reps can't close anything, <laughs> you know, because your positioning's weak. Sometimes what you get is, the sales reps are all hot and they can close people all day, but then they close these people. And once they start using it, they're like, dang, that's not what I thought it was. <laughs> and then they turn on you. So it shows up as metrics all over. Um, generally, um, I would be looking for, do I like, like one of the big signs is for me as a new VP is I'd be like, do we have an actionable segmentation? Which is another way of saying when I'm asking who is it, that is our best fit customer, do we have a definition of that with enough specificity that I could actually build campaigns around? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. I, you know, I had this job. I was a temporary VP marketing at this company on a contract. I came in and, uh, and so I sit down with the CEO and I'm like, okay, so who's our target market? And he says, Fortune 1000 companies. <laughs> That's not actionable segmentation, right? Like I can't, how do I build a campaign to go get Fortune 1000 companies? They literally have nothing in common right. except for the size. All over the like, map, there's a million, out, yeah, yeah. Like there's <laughs> nothing in common across Fortune 1000. So I'm like, okay, we clearly got a problem here, right? So then, I, and and the software was for business analysts, and and it it what it helped doing was managing internal build software projects. So I'm like, 
dude, like all of the fortune 1000 is not building software internally. Like what if I'm a gold mining company or something like, you know, and he's like, no, 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 they, we, we take those ones off. Like, so, you know, it's, it's fortune 1000 minus those. And I'm like, well, wait, like you're saying it's for business analysts, but if I'm a tech company, I don't have that. Like if software is my business, I don't have that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We take the tech companies off of there too. <laughs> and I'm like, well, look, if, if it's, Let's say I'm Fortune 2000 company, but I got a lot, a lot of internal software development and a lot, a lot of business analysts. Wouldn't I be in your target then? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you probably would be. So well, I don't have any segmentation at all. It has nothing to do with company size. I got nothing. Right. So we can't build a campaign around that. Like I, I just, I can't, right? So, so what I ended up doing was we did uh, we did we did a net promoter score survey on our customers to try to separate out the happy people from the not so happy people, and then we did a bunch of um, interviews with the happy people to see were there any patterns in who loves our stuff and why. And and what emerged really quickly was there basically you really loved our stuff if you were managing software projects where there were distributed teams. Interesting. And that's really specific. And and then you ask the question, well, why do they have distributed teams? Well, the reason they had distributed teams was because they grew by acquisition or they had distributed teams because they outsourced a lot of development to like India, sure. China. And so that's cool. So now if you say to me, April, go build me a campaign for companies of a certain size bigger than a certain size that do a lot of outsourcing to India and China, that's really specific. I can build campaigns for that. Do you know that there is a magazine called Outsourcers Weekly? And you can buy a full page ad for 5,000 bucks. And I drove a lot of revenue with that thing. Like that's like, that's actionable segmentation. I you would have never it. done that. Just segmenting to oh. fortune 1000 companies, right? Never in a million years. So, and then this is, you know, it's funny. It'd be the second time today this has come up, but this is why I, I fundamentally don't believe that product market fit is a helpful concept because this company was 50 million revenue. They might have had product market fit, but they right. couldn't tell me what the market was. Right, right. What you, need, what you need is an actionable segmentation. If what you want to do is put your foot on the gas in marketing and sales, well, you're going to need a segmentation to do that. How often do you get, because uh, you workshop a lot of this now, is there a lot of trepidation at that step where, it's, where essentially what you're telling them is to, to shrink the, in their mind, addressable market to something very specific? Is there a lot of pushback or trepidation at that step? Um, no, like usually, um, there's trepidation around the part where you define the market category. So, it, you know, if you're saying, look, you're going to, you're going to say that's what you are now that then people get nervous about that. <laughs> but if you say, look, you know, you've only got three salespeople and two people in marketing, why not have them all selling the companies that do outsourcing to India? Everybody goes, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> right. But if I say, why wouldn't you, well, you know, maybe you want to actually say we're software for companies that out for outsourcing and then wait, 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 wait. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot more, but you know, and sometimes you don't have to go all the way to actually putting it in your in the definition of your market category externally, but internally, if you're operating around that, then sometimes right. that's enough. I want to double click too on what you said before, because uh, it's a big theme in the book, which I have sitting right next to me right here. 
which is that weak positioning leaves a trail. Um, because I think a lot of people listening today probably have some, or at least they think they have some level of product market fit, they're growing, they might be profitable. The challenge that they might be self-identifying with was, I don't know if I'm really doing positioning right or if I've nailed it. Sort mm-hmm. of like the person that you just said that said, go, go, go look at Fortune 1000 companies. I'm sure a lot of people listening probably in their mind have a really big addressable market, but maybe they're not being, you know, tailoring it very well. Right, um, right. So, so, so really digging into those weak positioning leaves a trail again. You, you, you mentioned a few quickly that were brilliant. And uh, one of them was, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I could let you share them, but what, what were, what were some of the top ones, the top signals that you'd be looking for in your organization that my positioning really isn't nailing it right now? Yeah. Like, so the, the biggest one, like the one that you see most frequently and the one that is sort of like the number one sign that your positioning's not working so good is like people can't even figure out what the heck you are right so if you listen in on sales calls where they're doing a a first call with a brand new prospect you'll get this thing where the the sales rep will like do the pitch right like this is what we are Mm -hmm. this is what we do and they, they might even do a little demo and at the end of that then the customer's like so you're like a crm then (laughs) (laughs) no no and there's this thing where like the customer's like so show me that thing again so you're what exactly like (laughs) and that's that is number one sign of positioning is that like like people are just not even grokking what part of town you're in (laughs) (laughs) and so that means that there's something in the way that you're positioning it that is fundamentally confusing for customers. Either you see it in a way that they don't, or you see it in a way that is just not being clearly communicated by the way you're positioning the stuff. That's the number one one. Then you get a lot of ones where they, they think the customer thinks they know who you are, but then they but then they describe your competitor as being something that you think you don't compete with at all. There's a lot of that. Like they'll say, right. "So you know, you're like Salesforce." We're like, "No, we're nothing like <laughs> Salesforce." Why are you even saying <laughs> do that? You know what we do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you get that one where they, you know, they're making the wrong competitive comparison. Um, the other ones you get are ones like where the customer might understand what you do. They just don't really understand why it's valuable. I was like, yeah, yeah, I get that. I don't get why anyone would pay for it, right. but I get that. You know, so you, you get that one. Um, so they usually look like one of those things. Sometimes you'll get this thing like people will say, um, y- you know, I get it. I just don't get why I would buy that from you. Like this is more, you get that more in um hmm bigger companies where they're trying to position something that's really outside of what the company positioning is. So like, for example, I worked at IBM and every time we, you know, we did a really good job in big enterprise software, but every time we tried to position something for the mid market, it was a bit like, yeah, nice pitch, but I don't believe you can do that. Right. Right. IBM. Right. Because our positioning for enterprise was so strong um, it was difficult for us to then say, oh, yeah, and by the way, we could do mid-market too. It's like, really? Can, Interesting. Can- so you kind of you kind of essentially bigger companies could pigeonhole themselves to a specific positioning that is hard for them to break out of. Well, this is the thing. The If you're a multi-product company, <coughs> excuse me, if you're a multi-product company, 
your individual products don't live in a vacuum. They live underneath your company positioning. And so it cascades down from like, like at IBM, for example, if, if we would always position IBM first, like here's why you want to buy from IBM. And then here's why you want to buy software from IBM. And then here's why you want to buy database software from IBM. And now sure. let me tell you about my database product that's underneath that. And so, you know, anytime you lose that continuity, then I think it leads to messed up positioning where it's like, well, you know, you live inside this company. You can't just position a thing like it doesn't. It, it lives in there. So it actually has to cascade. And at IBM, we had this thing that if, if the product could be positioned better on its own without IBM, then it probably doesn't belong in IBM and we should sell it off. Sure. Right, that makes sense. Right, still, still a benefit and pro and something that could be profitable for the company, but probably something that wouldn't make sense or it's, wouldn't it's, be again. It, it's right. like us trying to do mid market stuff, right? right? I tell this story about how we're the most trusted vendor, whatever, whatever, whatever for enterprise software, and right. now I'm trying to tell you this mid market thing. Like the story doesn't make any sense. But it's still a valuable asset on its own, right? That makes sense. Um, Positioning statements. After listening to a conversation like this, you might have a bunch of listeners that go, all right, well, this is what I'm going to go work on. Positioning statements. This It's a healthy exercise for me to go through with my team. No. You don't like <laughs> positioning statements. You're you're against no, positioning okay, statements. You mentioned yeah, it in the book. Why, why should people listening never sort of waste time putting together a positioning statement? Okay, well, he, here's why. So the positioning statement, if you don't know what it is, it's like this... Mad libs fill in the blanks thing where you say our company is a blank and we do blank for blank, unlike blank, blankety blank, blank. And the blanks are, you know, my market category, my target customers, my competitors, whatever, whatever. And, you know, on the surface, it seems kind of sensible. Like the first time I came across it, I thought, okay, that sounds kind of sensible until you actually go to do it. And, then you're like, this is nonsense. Like, it's <laughs> actually stupid. So it's not actually helpful once you're done. It's like it's there's a million things that are wrong with it. So first of all, there's no methodology that tells you how to come up with the right answer for the blanks. So one of those blanks is market category. Let's say we were talking about Jana. How would I know what to write in that blank? Would it be enterprise CRM or CRM for investment banks? How would I know? Save me ten years of pain. <laughs> position statement and tell me how I know what my best market category is. There is no methodology. You're supposed to just write it down. So, so that's stupid. Right. And then the second thing is that, um, you know, it, it basically tricks you into thinking that there's only one right answer for each of those blanks when that's not true. There are a thousand right answers for any of those blanks. And it tricks you into thinking that the best answer is the first one that pops into your head. And that is frequently not true as well. So in that way, I think the positioning statement is actually harmful because it tricks you into thinking your positioning is obvious. It's just whatever pops into your head. And like even as a way to write down positioning, I don't think the positioning statement works very well because it doesn't contain enough information for you to be able to write it down and hand it to your marketing department or hand it to your sales department and have it mean anything or drive anything. So the entire exercise, according to me, is at best pointless 
and at worst, actually harmful. So I don't think anybody should do one. You probably wind up right back where you were, right? Because if you don't know the answers to some of these questions, you're going to rely on the things you already think. Yeah, positioning statements doesn't tell you how to get any answers. They're like, just write that shit down. So you're just <laughs> like, I don't, like, I don't understand. Write down the things you already think in your head, which if those things were correct, you wouldn't be doing this exercise in the first place. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's um, exactly it. So I so I think that's kind of a useless a useless thing. I, I I was forced to do them a couple of times, and um, I'd always have big fights with people about it and say, <laughs> "I'm not doing this stupid thing. I guarantee you, we're never going to look at it again. I'm going to write it down, but no one cares." And and then everybody like, "Oh, we have to have it." So we'd write it down, and then literally not once. Like I've never met anyone who ever used a positioning statement for anything after they right. built it. <laughs> whole lot of wasted time and, and a lot of opinions for, for nothing. Stupid. So you, you obviously, in the book, have a 10-step process that's uh, a lot more complete than a positioning statement would do. I'm not going to go through all 10 line items here, but there's a couple that I, wanna, I want to just like uh, hit on to get your opinion. First one being number one, which is just understanding customers that love your product, which you already kind of hit on before. Uh, when we were talking about what some of your priorities would be coming into a company to determine what their uh, positioning look like and if it needed to be revamped. Um, so why, why start there? Why is that helpful? Well, it's helpful for a bunch of reasons. So if you think about it this way, um, what your positioning should do is it should make your value proposition clear to people that are a really good fit for that value proposition. So what you're trying to do is build positioning that attracts a pipeline full of best fit customers. So the best way to do that is to really deeply understand your best fit customers. Now, every company I've ever worked at, we had good fit customers and we had bad fit customers. <laughs> and the problem with studying everybody, if I mix the good fit ones and the bad fit ones all together, I end up with this muddy data. So if in order to do really good positioning, one of the first things I need to understand is what my competitive comparable is. So I need to know how I'm different and better than my competition. But the competition is obvious, is not always obvious. So sometimes like in B2B, we're often competing with spreadsheets and, and interns and things that don't look like software competitors, right? So but if I went and just surveyed all my customers and said, hey, who, you know, who's the competition or what would you do if I didn't exist? Um, if I get the good fit ones and the bad fit ones, the definition of a bad fit customer is they kind of want you to be something you're not. Sure. So their, their idea of what you replace or what, what competes with you is going to be different. And you'll do that survey and what you'll get is is inconclusive bunch of answers that are all really different. So I like to start with the good fit ones and look for the patterns there because if I can position around that, then what I'm going to do is attract a whole bunch more good fit customers into my pipeline. Is NPS the best way to, to identify? Just because that could give you a general understanding. Do you find that that's the best way to... Really it's a, it's kind of a brute force method. It's really yeah. easy to administer. Sure. So, yeah. you know, I like it. I like it for that. And, you know, I, it's not going to tell you everything. And there's, you know, and there's the obvious problematic parts of NPS. But I've used NPS a lot just to do as a first swag on it. So I would, so you know how I used to get best fit customers? This is how I do it. So I would 
do a survey and I do NPS. And then I, I take just the slice of customers that gave me really high net promoter score, like those people that scored us really high. Then I would take the list to sales and say, are these people good fit customers? <laughs> and sales, sales defines a good fit customer as, you know, didn't ask for a discount, closed really fast, you know, intuitively got the thing. I didn't have to pitch you a hundred times. Then a lot of times you'll do the NPS score, you'll go to sales and sales will be like, not really, man. Like, you know, I take these three, four off of there and they'd always scratch a few out. And then I would do is I'd take the remaining list and I'd take it over to customer success and say, hey, support. Uh, are these guys good fit customers <laughs> and support sees all the overselling, right? Like sometimes sales will say something's a good fit customer and then support gets them and goes, no, man, they, they, they want us to be something we're not. And then, and then support would cross a whole bunch off the list. And then anything that survived that I figured was a pretty good fit <laughs> customer. And then I would go and do interviews with those ones that were left and, um, and the kind of conversations I'd be having is, so look, if we didn't exist, what would you do? So meaning, what were you doing to solve this problem that we solve? What were you doing before we came on the scene? And then what happened to make you think that you had to do something different? And then once you did make that decision, did you did you make a short list of companies to look at that included us and who else was on the list? And then, and then the last question, the obvious one, which is, so, you know, you picked us, why? And all of that stuff gives me a lot of insight into positioning. It's, you know, what am I positioning against if I'm trying to come into a Greenfield account? And then what am I positioning against if I'm in a competitive deal? And I need to understand that stuff in order to understand what are my real unique differentiating features? Therefore, what is my differentiated value? Sure. I like that. I like use, using using MPS to really get get started, but then you whittle it down. Just using, a swag, yeah. Right, it's right. good as a swag. It's not perfect. It's a blunt it's instrument. It's a good start, right? But it, yeah, it's easy to administer. It's easy, you know. You get you tend to get a lot of responses because it's fast, it's quick. You're not asking people to write your war and peace. <laughs> right. and, and then you dig down, right? Based on then that. then you dig down. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the other things you mentioned, one of the ten steps, which is the second, was the positioning team, putting one together. I jotted this one down to to get your thoughts on just because what, what what have you found to be the most productive way to do this? Just because I feel like this is one of those exercises that could very quickly spiral into just consensus, people arguing their opinions, they can take forever and you get nowhere. So what's the most productive way that people can look at putting together a positioning team? Yeah. So in my opinion, like I get asked the question a lot, like who owns positioning? Like, is that product or is that marketing Mm -hmm. who owns positioning? And that's a bit like saying who owns strategy for the whole business. Like, 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 like nobody owns that. The executive team owns that. The CEO founder owns that. So, um, so if you wanted to change your positioning, like, you know, and let's say you used to think about yourself as a database, but now you're going to position yourself as a business intelligence tool. Well, marketing doesn't get to make that decision on their own, right? Like you you need agreement across the executive team that you're going to do that. So if you're going to work on positioning, you got to have representation from marketing, sales, product, customer success, and, and, the CEO and ideally development understands it too, because they're going to have to build the thing 
So I like to have minimum that in the room. And, you know, what I found when I was uh, VP marketing is actually driving a positioning exercise was really, really hard because I would generally be coming in brand new and I would have to spend, even if I knew the first week that the positioning was bad and we were going to have to fix it, I couldn't just march into the CEO's office and say, hey, buddy, you know, your baby's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, your positioning's no good. Throw that out. You know, like, I would have to to literally get buy-in from the senior team leaders across the board before I even go talk to the founder about it. So I'd have to get sales on my side, then I'd have to get product on my side, then I'd have to talk to success and work my way around. And then I'd have to go to the CEO and say, you know what, I'm not saying your baby's ugly. I'm just saying maybe we should look at the positioning. Let's just have a look at it. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I think we should just check in on it. And in order to do that, we need to get the whole team together. And so that's the first thing. And then you get the whole team together. You This has to be a structured process. If it's just going to be, you know, I think we're a database. Well, I think we're a business intelligence tool. Well, why? Like, if there's no structured process, then all you're going to get is a bunch of political fighting. You know, and some people are newer than the company. Newer in the company, some people have more baggage from when the where the company used to be. And I mean, you need a structured process, otherwise, it's not going to work. Which, which is exactly the process that I've laid out in the book. Is the process that I built to use myself in these meetings, once I could finally get the whole executive team together, I needed a process to work people through so that it just, the, the conversation didn't just devolve into, right. you know, well, this, is my, this is my point of view. Well, this is my point of view. You need to actually be working through a process. And then the last thing I'll say is that part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now as a consultant is I wished I could have brought someone in from the outside to run that process because me trying to run it when I'm new in town and I've only been there for three months and I don't have any political clout. And, you know, maybe your previous vice president of marketing was a very political animal and sales is looking at me with great suspicion, thinking (laughs) I'm just making a play for budget or headcount or something. Like it's really hard for somebody internal to run that process and have everybody sort of agree to, you know, keep the best interests of the company at heart instead of their little department. And so what I do as a consultant now is I come in and run that structured process with the whole executive team in the room as like a neutral third party. I don't care about your politics sure. and your head count and your budget and all the rest of it. Right? <laughs> we're just trying to get to, we're just trying to get to, to good positioning and, and the head of marketing doesn't have to sit there like the person to, to actually moderate it. So I think it works a lot better. Well, if you, if you want to know the other eight, uh, you'll have to get the book, which is called obviously awesome. Uh, it's a fast, easy read. It's, it is. It's a very digestible read. Uh, it's a very it digestible is. read. It's I what? did that on purpose. I made it really short because I went and did um, I went and did uh, customer interviews. So I figured. Of course you did. The, <laughs> yeah, because that's my jam. So I so I my thesis on this was that I was going to sell it to startup CEOs and heads of marketing, heads of product. But I interviewed a whole bunch of startup CEOs about books, like, you know, you read any good books lately? And, <laughs> you know, what'd you like, what you didn't like, that sort of stuff. And what I found was that 
startup CEOs really love books. They really love books. They buy books. They start to read books. They just don't finish them. <laughs> so they, they get on a plane, you know, and they get halfway through the book and then they never pick it up again and then they just don't finish. So, um, so I decided, well, I need to make a book that's short enough that you can read it on a, on a flight and you're done by the time you hit the ground. So I ended up making the book like half as long as it originally was um, to meet that requirement. And, and you were saying when we first got on the call before that you, you were kind of surprised early on about the response. Yeah, I was. I actually, just because it's such a weird, niche little topic, and like, right. there's nothing cool about positioning, right? <laughs> it's, been around, it's been around since the dawn of time, and it's, like you say, it's one of these things, like, nobody even really understands what it is, and whatever, like, I've been talking about this stuff forever, but it's 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 been hard for me to get people's interest in it, so... I originally wrote the book thinking it would just be a thing that I would give to people that came to me for help that couldn't afford to hire me as a consultant. <laughs> I'd say, look, you know, you can self-serve with this sucker or people that live too far away for me to get to, sure. you know, like the Australians are always calling me and that's a really long that's flight. Hike, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I kind of thought, oh, it'll be, it'll be interesting that way. But no, the response of the book has been amazing, like way better than I ever, ever imagined. I feel like I've seen so much about it. I've seen you on podcasts, blog posts about it, people sharing it on Twitter. So congrats because Ooh, it's, thanks. uh, and then, uh, I got my hands on it and, uh, it's great. So, but thank you for coming on and, and sharing so much. This was, this was great. And, uh, I swear I don't say this to everybody, but this, I think was one of my favorite conversations I can remember of late. So thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we did it. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.